You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Well, it's good to have you here. Um, We're talking about joy today, and we're going to be talking about that for a while. I think we need it. Um, Well, we really do need it. Um, Paul's inviting us into it. The Christian life can be a life of joy, but what does joy mean? That's going to be part of the term uh, that we're going to have to figure out. What does joy mean? I don't think it just means frivolity or goofiness or even happiness. Do you know the word happiness is from happenstance, which means it's just it goes up and down with circumstances. Joy is something that's a constant, but joy, I think, can be had in all circumstances because it, it, joy is far-sighted. What I mean by that is it's looking at the end goal of everything and knowing what God is going to do, what God has promised, what God is going to do with you and me, and therefore we can get there. No matter what's in between, we can have that view of eternity. So according to the Bible, the future of this world and this universe is not a tragedy. It's actually more of a comedy, if anything, okay? Because there is going to be a day when you are going to laugh and you are going to dance and you're going to even giggle and just probably be crying for joy at what God is doing when he comes in glory. And when Jesus comes in glory, he's going to be dancing and laughing and celebrating over you and welcoming you into his kingdom and into the love and the joy that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have had from eternity that started with creation and will finally finish with redemption and salvation for all of us. Isn't that amazing? So that's the perspective Paul has and that's why I believe the synonym, the synonym, let's get the word out today, right? The synonym for joy is not happiness. And it's not even the frivolity we did yesterday, although I think there was a lot of joy yesterday. Um, the cinnamon, cin- <laughs> cinnamon, synonym, I think, for joy is going to be this word that we're going to look at for the next few weeks as we go through this called wholeheartedness. And the definition of wholeheartedness from Merriam-Webster is to be completely and sincerely devoted, determined, and enthusiastic. To be marked by earnestness, free from all reserve. That's Paul in this letter. Even while he is chained to the Praetorian Guard in Rome, he is free without reserve in his love for the Philippians, his love for God's kingdom, for what God is doing, and he knows what that's all about. Isn't that amazing? That's yours. That's what he invites you into. So we're going to be reading um, through the whole letter in the next six, eight weeks. I can't remember how long this one is. Maybe only six weeks. Um, We're going to letter parts of the letter. We're starting at the beginning today because it's the beginning. So uh, Philippians chapter 1 and following, okay, through verse 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. See, that word already comes up. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you 
will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See the farsightedness of this? It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, wholeheartedness. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There's so much in this passage. We're going to focus on a few ideas in it. I bet I could do probably a series of about three or four weeks just on this. But today what we're going to look at is um, Paul's prayer, which is at the end of this section, okay? Then Paul's perspective, which is kind of in the middle, and then Paul's persuasion. You like those three Ps? Yeah, well, it's trying to make you remember things. PPP, yeah. <laughs> price, price, price. Is that what people say? I thought it was location, location, location. Yeah, something like that. But Paul's prayer, his perspective, and persuasion. So Paul's prayer. So this is what it said. Um, my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Now that word excellent in the Greek, yeah, I know, I'm already going to the Greek. But um, when we think of excellent, we just think, uh, I don't know, what do you think? Excellent, something excellent. Perfect, great, wonderful. The word actually means something different. Diaphero is the Greek word there. It's that which makes a difference, that which lasts, that which will carry through all time, you know, that surpasses things. So there's a lot of, quote, what we think is excellent that don't really last. Paul's looking for you to have things that make a difference for eternity. He's got his far-sighted view at the end of time, the beginning of the new creation, and says, let's live in line with that. And whatever's going to make it to eternity, that's what we're doing here. That's what's excellent. Um, I remember hearing uh, Tony Campolo. He's a Christian author. Years and years ago, he talked about his sons when they were in high school. And as they were getting on the bus in the morning, he'd go to them and say, hey, sons, today, go mad. <laughs> mad stands for make a difference. Go make a difference. He's getting that kind of from Philippians here. What's going to make a difference? That's a question you need to ask, or I'd ask you to ask any given day, any given week. What's going to really make a difference? Not what's just easy, fun. I mean, those things are great. We had a lot of fun yesterday. Why do you think we do stuff like that? Because we want to make a difference in people's lives. You know? Um, we want, we're looking at eternity, and we want them there. <clears throat> OK. What makes a difference? I might have shared this. I'm not sure. David Brooks, he's a. Um, New York Times um, op-ed uh, writer often. He's also a Christian. He's got some really good stuff out. And he talks, and I use this in my leadership class. 
he talks about the difference between what he calls eulogy virtues and resume virtues, okay? And uh, we'll explain that. I think he's really saying what makes a difference. Which one, resumes or what happens when somebody speaks at your eulogy? So um, he said, and uh, students here might need to kind of, you know what's happening at universities is everybody's looking for their resume virtue. So um, some of you are freshmen possibly here. And um, in high school, you think of, OK, what's going to look good on my transcript so I can get into the right college? Do you understand what I mean by that? And so, oh, I know what I need to do. I need to get in some service learning hours doing volunteer work, because that's going to look good on my transcript. So it's not really about the actual survey. It might be, but it's also because I can write it down, right? And what classes do I need to take, et cetera, and so forth. And so what we learn here, even at the university now, the latest, greatest is, and I'm, I'm going to actually do this in my class too, is called micro-credentialing. Have you ever seen digital badging? Have you heard of that now? So the digital badges are things like leadership, communication, writing skills, critical thinking, right? Notice they don't have a digital badge on compassion. And you might go like, well, wait a minute. How would you measure that? Does it matter? What really makes a difference? How well I communicate or my level of compassion for people? So um, <clears throat> digital badging may be a good thing, but what you'll find at college nowadays is all about your skills and your knowledge. And the thing that is not emphasized is your character. And yet what I believe David Brooks is getting at it is the eulogy virtues are always about your character. You know, um, when you go to a funeral or a eulogy, you don't hear about how many hours so-and-so spent at the office what skills they had, how much money they made, what inventions even that they did. Um, I did actually um, the funeral <clears throat> for um, Bob Cade, the inventor of Gatorade. Okay, Makes $450 million a year for PepsiCo. Quite a bit, right? He was, but you know, at his funeral, we didn't talk about, oh, look at how much money he made for this company or that or the university. They'd get 15% every year. We talked about how he gave to missions, how he served anonymously, how many lives he invested in. His wife didn't even realize where everything went sometimes. He just did so many things. There were people from all over the world, from Brazil and Asia, that came just to pay respects, not because they expected anything, but because of the thanks they had for this man who invested in their lives. And you would never know it. He lived in a house, the same house that he started in in the 1960s in Gainesville, Florida. And it looked like anybody else's house, except for the 48 Studebakers he had in a garage. <laughs> hey, you know. But he was a very humble man. But it was his character that mattered. His character that mattered. And, and that is what I think, you, what makes a difference in the end? 
That's what you have to ask. And I think Paul's talking about that. Now, he's talking about it in the Roman world. In Philippi, as well as the rest of the Roman world, boy, their value system was kind of cattywampus. It was just all over the place. It'd be like going into a grocery store and you see a candy bar costing $28.95. That might have been last week these days, but, um, but you understand, $28.95. And then you turn over and you see this ahi tuna steak for 12 cents. That's about the way it felt like in the Roman world. The prices were all out of whack. The value system was all messed up. And it was hard to figure out because in their system, uh, there was a very structured pyramidical, um, not even a pyramid. It's kind of like very thin line to a very broad base. Uh, Michael Gorman writes this about the Roman world that Paul is writing to. Simply defined, he says, honor and shame, which it was an honor and shame society, which we'll explain, refer to the ongoing attribution or loss of esteem by one's peers, family, social class, city, and so on. In Roman society, this respect was based primarily on such things as wealth, education, rhetorical skill, family pedigree, and political connections. These were the culture status indicators. In this context, self-esteem would be conceived as ridiculous. The only esteem one has is bestowed not by the self, but by the group. In this environment, peer pressure is not negative or something to avoid, but is viewed as appropriate and welcome. In other words, it, it's not what you think of yourself doesn't matter. In Romans, it's what everybody else was talking about. And what they were talking about was based on wealth and status and power situations. If you want to look at this illustration by Gorman's book, it shows um, kind of the pyramidal structure. You know, on top is, of course, the emperor. <laughs> it's good to be king in this system. And then there was a governing class of a few senators. Below that then were people like the equites or equestrians and classes of military and political figures, then landowners and other wealth, then the retainers who were uh, government functionaries. But just you take that entire top group and it was a whole 3% of the population. Another 10 to 5 to 15% possibly well, what we might say is middle class, but it wasn't really middle, middle class. What they mean is they had some wealth and a little property, but they had no political power. They didn't vote. They didn't get to say anything. They didn't get to change society. They just could get, get by better. But about 85% of that population barely survived. Most were slaves. Do you get the picture here? The goal. <laughs> which is like almost impossible. But it's like, oh, we'll show you the exception here and there. The goal was for you to get somebody above you to recognize you enough that you might be able to climb the ladder a little. So Paul knows that this is what the society is saying at that time in Paul's situation of what matters, your status and what other people thought of you. And so it's fascinating the opening words of this letter to Philippi, Paul says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, are language. But the Greek word is doulos. It means slave. He just identified himself and Timothy with the lowest of the low at the bottom of society. 
But he says, I belong to another, Jesus Christ. And being his slave changes everything. So how do we compare our culture today to Rome? We're much more highly individualistic. Oh, well, you're going to do it too, Siri, but no, I'm not asking you. Okay. Um, in some ways, have you noticed the value system that we have? What really matters? What are some things that uh, our society say really matters? Wealth. Wealth power. Equity. Equity. Uh, yeah, okay, what? Social status. Celebrity. Do you realize there are people today, the goal is to just get a zillion followers? And that's their job. <laughs> that's their life. That's their identity. Some people talk equity. But that's kind of a counteract to what everybody says really matters. And so we get our, demi, the, our um, demigods in our pantheon are actors, wealthy people, sports people, and people who just have no real specific talent, but everybody knows them by name. I won't name any right now, but you can probably think of a few. One starts with a K, the whole family. <laughs> Paul says, does that matter? No. So what is Paul's perspective? This is what he says to the Christian church there in Philippi, which was not probably bigger than 40 or 50 people in a city of 10, 20,000. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. His perspective, like I said at the beginning, is always the day of Jesus Christ. And what really matters in the end, what really matters. Paul's perspective is that. And he says, God is going to bring you to completion. And the truth here is not you individually. The plural is there. It's really the southern all you all to completion. It's all of us together. God is working to bring the fullness of who we are as the body of Christ, as the people of God, the fullness of how we serve and love one another to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. And so when all is aligned again to God's love and truth and when the smallest service will one day be applauded and acclaimed, that's what Paul is looking towards. That is what he's saying. You know what's funny? In our society, it's all about the individual and the individual status right now. You can look up, by the way, different analytics. One is Google Books. And in Google Books, it uh, can uh, trace different phrases. And I think um, in Google Books, it will trace these phrases. What you find out is that in the 1990s, uh, the uh, Pronouns like we and me were about the same, uh, or we and us were about the same and equal to I and me. But now that's doubled, I and me. And we and us has stayed flat. 
We're much more individualistic. And you will see phrases like believe in yourself, express yourself, just be yourself. You can be anything accelerating from the 60s into 2019 so that those are the phrases everybody's focused on. It's always about the individual. <clears throat> and Paul says that's not the right perspective. It's, he says, I have you all, all you all in my heart. It's about how I am doing all this for all y'all and all of us together are going to get there. Interesting question. Why is Siri continually coming on? What's fascinating to me is um, you might go like, well, you know, yeah, our, our individualism is pretty big in the United States, but what the what's the problem with that? Um, I think it was this summer, maybe it was the spring, Vivek Murthy, who is the Surgeon General of the United States, put out a report <coughs> that said, we are now in the United States in the middle of a loneliness epidemic. I don't know if you've read it. It's worth reading or looking at. This is what he says. In recent years, about one in two adults in America reported experiencing loneliness. And that was before the COVID-19 pandemic cut off so many of us from friends, loved ones, and support systems exacerbating loneliness. Loneliness, by the way, is far more than a bad feeling. It harms both individual and societal health. It's associated with a greater risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, stroke, depression, anxiety, and premature death. The mortality impact of being socially disconnected is similar to that caused by smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day, and even greater than associated with obesity and physical inactivity. And the harmful consequence of a society that lacks social connection can be felt in our schools, workplaces, and civic organizations, where performance, productivity, and engagement are diminished. See, if I think I, me, and my, mine is the ultimate and important, and I realize you probably believe that too, no wonder we can't connect to each other. No wonder we're lonely because I can't really trust you or open myself to you, and you can't really trust me either if I'm just so self-centered. And by the way, um, I don't think those are eulogy virtues. You know, I don't think I want uh, spoken at my uh, eulogy or funeral saying, you know, John, he really thought a lot about himself. He had high self-esteem, <laughs> not for anybody else, but for himself. He really tried to, he cared about his own brand and how many people and what people thought of him. Do you understand what I mean? Those are not virtues. That's not going to last. Paul says what lasts on the day-to-day -day basis in this letter. He says, I have you, Philippians, in my heart. He loves them. And he'll do anything for them. And he wants them to know that. You know what actually lasts forever? If you want a short list to just kind of go, hmm, this is the list. What matters? What's going to make a difference today? Go to Galatians chapter 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, and self-control. These are not individualist words. You don't just have love. You love and are loved. You don't have joy. You celebrate with others. 
You don't have peace in yourself. It's peace with other people. These are all patience is always with other people, right? Those are the things that last forever. Those are the character issues. Those are the things that make a difference in our society and world. And those are the things that will end and will be filled in eternity. So why do you think Paul was persuaded that those things were important rather than status, than power, than wealth? Why do you think Paul even thought it was more important, those things, than the laws and rules and being, quote, moral? Because you will see that come up in this letter as well. And it comes down to Paul's persuasion. He is persuaded not by an ideal, not by things, but by a person. In chapter 2 of this letter, it's got one of the most beautiful poems, hymns. We're not quite sure what to make it. It says, have this attitude which was in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Do you know what it goes on to say? Jesus, who was wealthier than any, who created the universe but never owned a piece of property, who could have been at the top of society. In fact, what he does is he becomes a doulos, a slave. The lowest of the low, and he dies the death of a slave, of someone so insignificant for you. Not to set up an ideal to just say this is important, but to do that for you, to break the power of all these things that we think are so important, to break through that which would make your life meaningless and worthless in the end, which is death itself is the great equalizer and hardly any, to make it so that his love for you, his joy over having you, his patience with you and bearing with you throughout life will come to the fulfillment where he will celebrate with you forever in eternity. That's what Paul's persuaded to say. And next week, we're going to see this phrase from Philippians 1.21. For to me, he says, to live is Christ. Now, for me to live is success. For me to live is status. For me to live is a paycheck. For me to live is significance. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus should have been the emperor. He was the king. He is the king of this world. But he chose to be the slave to everyone, to give us the wealth of the kingdom. So he revalues all human values. Now, I, I don't know. Hopefully this hasn't been your case, but I know it has for some. Um, that you've been uh, burned by organized religion. Because instead of the Christian church being a place where status didn't matter, it just seemed like there were just a few people that were powerful in the church. And everybody else was supposed to just you know, applaud them and stay in their place. Maybe you've been disillusioned with what you've seen among the followers of Jesus. Maybe you think organized religion, well, I don't want to be a part of it. Well, don't worry. 
Thrive is not organized. <laughs> we I, I'm not an organized. I'm lost half the time. It's like, oh, yeah, I guess I should have done that. Um, but, um, and maybe you'd be tempted like possibly the Philippians who look at Paul now in prison, chained there, and wondering, is that the direction I want to go in life? The only thing that's persuasive enough, I think, for anyone to live a purposeful life that makes a difference is nothing less, not Paul, not any other Christian, but finally it's got to be Jesus. It's what he has done for you. God does not stop being your God. God does not give up on you. And as Philippians says here, he is going to bring us all to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this day, for this time together, for the start of this where we can have joy, that is, we can live wholeheartedly for others and for you uh, without reservation, Lord, because, Lord, you lived wholeheartedly for us. You gave up everything to have us. You wanted us. And uh, we're amazed at that, Lord God. We see the value system in this world and how messed up it can be. Lord, forgive us when we are tempted to, uh, to, to buy into that system. Give us the clear insight that Paul had, even in prison, to see the, the far-sighted kingdom of God and your coming in glory, Lord Jesus, and what that means and what really matters, what makes a difference. And give us that discernment like the first, uh, the Philippians that Paul prayed for. Today, there are so many that we're thinking of right now who not only need that perspective, but that joy. And we pray your healing and care upon for Laurel as she's been in the hospital this morning, Lord, with such pain after a fall. We pray, Lord, your healing upon her. You know how she loves to serve here and to serve others in so many ways. We just pray, Lord, for Otto and Laurel now, Lord, that you would bring that healing to bear. We lift up to you, Vicki, um, Lord, with her mom passing away. Lord, we know now, Lord, the glory that you have for Carol, her mom. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for your grace that she is resting, Lord. And uh, I pray that you'd give to Vicki and her brother and the family and any friends, Lord, your peace, and that you may be glorified in all of this. We lift up to you, um, Lord, uh, um, uh, today we've been asked by a pastor friend of mine, Jay Das and Julie Das, his wife, who have been ministering in Pakistan, and the, uh, the uh, well, the riots that have happened over um, rumors of Christians blaspheming the Quran, and Lord, the, the violence that has ensued, and Lord, we pray for peace. And we pray, Lord, you would bring your truth to bear and that you'd protect your church and have it grow even through persecution now, Lord. So in that area of Jaranwala, Pakistan, as well as across the country, Lord, that uh, we just ask your will to be done and you, Jesus, are the Prince of Peace. Bring that about, Lord God. Um, we thank you, Lord, for our campus ministry in the beginning of this year. We just pray that you have it grow as you see fit, that this ministry is yours, Lord, and you would have it grow as you so desire. We pray that we can make a difference, Lord, 
in the lives of other people. That's what really matters, Lord. That's what's really excellent. Uh, Lord, you know how easy it is to get caught up in everything else. Uh, help us to follow you. Bless our time as we now give of our tithes and offerings this day. Um, and uh, prepare us to receive the most amazing gift, Lord Jesus, in yourself, in the Lord's Supper, and um, to respond by giving, us, uh, giving ourselves to you, Lord. That's what you want, nothing else but me, myself, all of us together. Lord, teach us to live wholeheartedly in those ways. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.